Here at The Bridge, we love the Word of God. Do, do we love the Word of God here at The Bridge? So we're gonna take a few minutes and get into the Word tonight and hear something about this marvelous night that we celebrate, something that matters, something that is worth the celebration. John chapter one. If you have a Bible, great. If you don't, that's cool. Just listen in. I won't go as long as usual. John chapter one, verse one says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And John chapter one, verse 14 tells us, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the father, full of grace and truth. And Lord, I pray in the few minutes before us here that you will fill us with grace and truth. The grace and truth, Lord, that only comes by your spirit only become, comes, Lord, because you offer it. Well, we are here as, as willing recipients. And I pray for every heart and every ear present tonight to hear you, Lord, not to cast this off as, a, as an observance, but to truly listen and see if we can't hear your voice tonight speaking to us. We praise your name, Lord Jesus, and we now are open to you. In Jesus' name, amen. So I have a question for you. How far back can you remember Christmas? What are your memories? And when you think of Christmas has gone by, do you remember them fondly, even with romantic notions of, of holly berries and tree lights always working? Man, this year, we got a new tree three years ago, pre-lit, beautiful tree, really cool, outdoorsy-looking thing, and... Area by area, the lights have been going out over the, I, I don't know if I'm blowing fuses, I don't know what's going on, but it's really weird when you see a tree real lit up at the top and lit up at the bottom and completely dark around the middle. I don't know if you remember Christmas fondly, you think, oh man, I just love it, and every year comes around and you dive in, you know, I don't know if you're like Penelope listening to the music around September, um, but what do you remember? Or do you remember like Clark W. Griswold, Christmases that were a complete catastrophe. And more than that, when you think about life, I, I, we all have holiday rec recollections, good and bad, and they're part of the mix. You know, and it truly is a mixed bag of things. Some are sweet memories. Others leave a bitter aftertaste. I've, I've shared, I know in this place before, but my probably sweetest Christmas Eve memory was at my grandparents' home. We drove up the five freeway in California, ended up in Long Beach at my grandmother and grandfather's house. My grandmother was paralyzed at that point from the neck down. She would be for the last 16 years of her life, and so we spent a lot of time going up to visit her. She was a tremendous influence. By the way, if you lose all function but your ability to share the truth, you are a powerful person in the hands of God because she couldn't move, she couldn't do anything for me but talk to me and listen to me and change my life. But this particular Christmas Eve I, Eve, I couldn't even go into her room because I contracted food poisoning from a bad batch of old macaroni and cheese. Watch that stuff. It'll get you. And so I was on the couch in the living room, laying with a blanket over me, just resting. My brother my parents were in the back room meeting with, talking to, spending time with my grandmother. I had the lights of the tree. That's about all I had to look at, you know, twinkle. And then my grandfather came in. 
Very soft-spoken, rarely said a whole lot, except, Rick, do you want a cake of gum? I could never figure out what he meant by a cake of gum, but that's what he called it. He'd always give me some gum, and, but that was about it. Well, this night, he came in, and he sat down in his easy chair, which was right next to the tree. It was dark in the room, but the tree lights, I, I, I mean, I can remember. Maybe it's just, you know, my own romanticizing the, the moment, but I remember him sitting there in the dark with nothing but the colored lights reflecting on him. And he just started telling me stories of growing up on a farm in Tennessee in the 1920s. And for the next hour, he took me to a different place. And I got to spend that time with him, and I have never forgotten it. And that Christmas was bitter in my belly, <laughs> but it was sweet in my heart. It was bittersweet. The stories of Jesus' first coming are a mixed bag. There's a lot of joy there. There's a lot of excitement. There's a lot of wonder. And there's also a lot of pain. Now, if you look at the four gospel writers, and we're actually going to do it tonight, and we're going to do it at, at laser speed, okay? First of all, Mark. Mark comes out, and he sums the whole thing up in one concise sentence. He says, Mark chapter 1, verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and Mark is off like a shot. He is rolling. Next thing you know, John the Baptist is there, and then Jesus is in his public ministry, and everything happens immediately. It's so fast. No time for poignant or painful stories. Just go, go, go. Jesus, Je Jesus is an action hero in the book of Mark because everything is just doing and going. Well, Luke comes along, and he's much more detailed. The physician journalist recounts the birth stories of both John the Baptist and Jesus, and he tells it really more sweet than sad. It's where we get, O little town of Bethlehem, and our romanticized visions out. But, man, a Roman census wasn't, wasn't exactly convenient, you know, for a young expectant couple. And when Joseph and a very pregnant Mary arrived in Bethlehem, the best, Western inn, best, the best Middle Eastern inn was all full up. Nowhere to go. You know the story. In fact, let me read it to you again. In Luke chapter 2, verse 6, it says, When they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. In other words, she was busting. It's the Rick translation. Verse 7, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And oh, how we've romanticized that. In the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping over their watch, watch over their flocks by night. These shepherds were special, unique, still the bottom of the rung socially. You know, shepherds were really the, the lower, lower class. But these guys had important jobs. They probably were out in the fields known as Migdal Adair or the Tower of the Flock. Just outside of Bethlehem, the Tower of the Flock. Genesis chapter 35, verse 19, tells us that Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. Jacob set up a pillar over her grave. That's the pillar of Rachel's grave to this day. And then Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the Tower of Adair, Migdali Dare, the Tower of the Flock. Micah chapter 4, verse 8 says, As for you, Tower of the Flock, Migdal Adair, Hill of the daughter of Zion, which is the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, to you it will come. This prophecy is amazing because it refers to both Jesus' birthplace and his execution burial place. Bethlehem and Jerusalem 
It says, even the former dominion will come, the kingdom of the daughter of Jerusalem, the prophet said. So Micah prophesied about that. We read about it historically in Genesis 35, Migdal Adair. And I'm telling you all that because in the outskirts of Bethlehem, we believe these shepherds were temple shepherds. Their unique job was to raise little lambs for sacrifice in the Jewish temple. That's what they did. And so what's very interesting about that is they had a practice of swaddling the lambs. A lamb would be born, and oftentimes newborn lambs will kick and thrash. Well, these were special lambs. We can't have any bruises. We can't have any spots or any marks, or they won't be any good for the, for the temple. So they would swaddle them in cloth and quite literally lay them in a manger until they calmed down. Interesting. A lamb swaddled in a manger. And Luke says, an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be, they say, this will be a sign for you. You'll find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. And when the angels had gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds began saying to one another, Let's go straight to Bethlehem then and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has made known to us. So they came in a hurry and found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. How did they know where to go? You, you might think, well, okay, go find the baby in a manger. Bethlehem was a small they went right to the very edge of Bethlehem. There are a series of caves there. And that is where we believe that Jesus was actually born, in those shepherd's caves that were used as sheep pens. The recognizable sign that the angel gave the shepherds would have been very well known to them, would have made sense to them to go to the place where the lambs were swaddled, go to the place where the mangers were. And so they went straight there, found the baby, wrapped in swaddling cloth and lying in a manger like a sweet little lamb. Revelation chapter 5, verse 12 says, Worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And you Bible students know, worthy is the lamb. That word lamb is arneon, which means little lamb. Worthy is the little lamb. It is the word used for a brand new baby lamb well, the story continues. They came in a hurry and found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. And when they had seen this, oh, they made known the statement which had been told them about the child. And all who heard it wondered at these things which were told them by the shepherds. Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. But the shepherds went back, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen just as had been told them. And I wonder as they wandered, how often those same shepherds remembered that first Christmas, we could call it. How often did they talk about it, think about it, recall the wonder of that night? Now, Matthew, he reaches back even farther than Luke. Luke goes right back to the birth story, shares that all. Matthew goes further than that. To the ancient memories, if you will, of the prophets 
written down messages both joyful and sorrowful, prophecies both precious and painful. You see, for Joseph, it all started out discovering his wife was pregnant and not by him. They were betrothed, which is like engagement, only as serious as marriage, but they had not come together because they were still yet betrothed and not married. And suddenly Mary comes along and says, um, got something to tell you, Joseph. Can you imagine the conversation? Can you imagine his heart breaking? And the first Christmas for Joseph began finding out his wife was pregnant. How shameful. Of course, then Joseph has a dream and discovers because he's thinking, I got to divorce her quietly, put her away, get done with this. And he has a dream. And in the dream, an angel comes to him and says, hey, bro, she's pregnant by the Holy Spirit. So it's all good. Again, Rick's translation. But you get the idea. Joseph awakes from the dream and by faith says, all right. Keeps her a virgin, cares for her, loves her all the way to the birth of Jesus stays with her. I think that's marvelous. Matthew chapter 1, verse 22 says, All this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. That's Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. That's a prophecy that was given 740 years before Jesus' birth. The virgin birth prophesied. Well, then Matthew, and quickly, I'll tell you this skips ahead a couple of years probably. A couple of years, they're still in Bethlehem, but the child now is referred to as, well, in, in the Greek language, he's referred to as a toddler. And the wise men, the magi, they come to a house, not to the caves, not to the manger, but to a house in Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. That's Micah chapter 5, verse 2. That was given 750 years before Jesus was born. And then Matthew talks about their flight to Egypt, their, their getaway. In verses 14 and 15, it says, Joseph got up, took the child and his mother while it was still night and left for Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. This is Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. Out of Egypt, I called my son. I love how the Lord weaves all of this together. By the way, that was also spoken prophetically in Numbers chapter 24, verse 8. You can go all the way back and look at that. 1,500 years before Jesus was born that Moses makes it. No, actually, it's not Moses. It's uh, Balaam makes the, prof the prophetic statement out of Egypt. He will call his son. It's remarkable these things were spoken so early on. In verse 18, for all the beauty of the moment and the drama and the sweetness, then what had been spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they were no more. Jeremiah the prophet, chapter 31, verse 15, prophesies that the women around Ramah are going to weep and wail. And you know what happened at the birth? And after the birth, around between the ages of birth and, and, and age two, all of the young male children, two years old and under, were slaughtered by Herod, the Herodian infanticide. Finally, Matthew talks about the return 
to growing up as a boy in Nazareth, Nazareth, verse 23, where it says, obviously, he shall be called a Nazarene. But Isaiah the prophet, chapter 11, verse 1, says a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. And the word branch in Hebrew is netzer. It is the root word for Nazareth. He will be called a netzer. He'll be called a branch, a Nazarene. So wonderful prophecies of, of Christmas. Mark, remember, just gets the ball rolling. And then Luke comes along and goes to the birth and, and brings it forward. And then Matthew goes all the way back to ancient prophecies, even as far back as 1,500 years before Jesus and coming up closer to the birth. Some of these were joyful memories. Some were painful prophecies. What about John? What about John? Of the four evangelists, John is the one who went back further than all the rest. He waited longer, too. He probably wrote his gospel some 60, 70, maybe even 80 years after it all happened. So he's an old man when he's recalling these things and writing about these things, but he doesn't start with the birth. He doesn't start with the ancient prophecies. No, John goes all the way back to the beginning. John chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the word was God. He was in the beginning with God, reaching all the way back. As Micah the prophet said, Micah chapter 5, verse 2, his goings forth are from long ago, from days of eternity. And Micah was talking about this baby. Part of why I'm doing this and covering some of these prophecies is to tell you, look, the Bible doesn't give you the option of seeing Jesus as anything but eternal. That is God. The Bible, if you are going to take God at his word, you have to accept that Jesus is the ancient of days. The ancient. If you want to know why, come back on January 2nd, if we're not snowed out. But for tonight, listen, Emmanuel, God with us, the little lamb wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger, arrived in the most stunning, amazing gift wrap. Again, verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That is one of the most stunning sentences in the entire Bible. The word God, because the word was with God and the word was God, right? The word became flesh and dwelt among us. It's a stunning statement. It's also highly offensive. That the Bible says this is a shocker. Now, we don't think that way because, we, oh, the Word became flesh. And we think theologically, you know, and, and, and we get out our commentaries and go, oh, well, the Word was flesh. And therefore, yeah, no, 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 this is, this is an offense. It was in the culture to say what John said here. Before I tell you why, let me tell you this. The Word actually became flesh at an interesting time. And John may be giving us a clue as to the actual birthday of Jesus. Now, I hate to burst anyone's bubble or crack some candy canes tonight, but Jesus was not born on December 25th. But we have a guess and some clues as to when he may have been born and something I think that's marvelous here. So listen close. Shepherds would not be out in the fields at night in December in, in Israel. Way too cold. And they wouldn't take the sheep out. And so, because it would be too cold and the shepherds wouldn't be out there, they would be in the sheep pens around the sheep in the caves, tucked in, safe and warm, which means all of the mangers would have been full of food. There would have been no room for them in the pen, much less the inn. 
but don't put away your manger scenes yet. See, these shepherds and their flocks would be out in the fields by night in the month of Tishri, which is October, September, October time frame. That month, listen to me, that month, the Jewish people celebrate probably their biggest, most joyful celebration of the year, which is called Sukkot Tabernacles, the Feast of Tabernacles. The word that John uses when he says the word became flesh and dwelt among us is skenuo in the Greek, and it means to tabernacle. He came and tabernacled with us. Why would John choose such a word? Well, there are several factors that I won't go into tonight for time's sake, but there are several factors that support the likelihood that Jesus was indeed born to tabernacle among us in the month of Tishri, which I think is really cool because Tishri, my birthday is right in the middle of Tishri. So <laughs> listen, listen, nine months earlier, which would put us right around December 25th. So perhaps the Word was made flesh on what we call Christmas Day. All you got to do with your manger scenes is just put a little ultrasound monitor in there. <laughs> and you got it covered. Because the Word became flesh, Jesus became human life, was conceived at that marvelous time by the Holy Spirit. But again, it wasn't just the timing and the angels and all the wonder and the awe. It was what he wore. Not swaddling clothes, flesh. Flesh. This word flesh. Sarks. S-A-R-X. Sarks. And if you say this word in the Greek, you are talking about something demeaning. It is the carnal corporeal mass of human flesh or even animal flesh, sarks. It's the muscular part of the organ. John's choice of words here, when he said the word became, the word, the logos, logos for the high-minded Greeks was the, as most, that was the most reasonable and high thinking you could get, the logos. And John says, yeah, that's Jesus. And the logos became flesh. And it was offensive to the intellectually minded Greco-Roman world. The word became what? John doesn't even say soma, which is the Greek word for body. He says flesh. And let me put it this way for you. It, Jesus' birth into the world is called the incarnation, which itself sounds theological till you consider that the root word is carnal. The incarnation. He became carnal. He became carnality. He didn't just appear to be human. He put on earthy, meaty, sweaty, smelly, vulnerable human flesh. And I'm just trying to get down to that point of recognizing that he who was God and glory and wonder and splendor became flesh, dirty, stinking human flesh. No offense, but hey, we all have to deal with ourselves personally, and we know it's true. Dirty, stinking human flesh. Paul said in Philippians 2.6, although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. Taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, and that word appearance is schema. It means the schematics were exact. He was human. He was fully human and yet fully God. Though in humility, Jesus 
set that aside to walk among us. And as a man, Paul says, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Paul said in 1 Timothy 3.16, without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in flesh. I told you the Bible's absolutely clear about this. Who was Jesus? He wasn't just another prophet, wasn't just another teacher, wasn't just some amazing miracle worker who had the old age in him. He was God in flesh. He who had once only knew, known glory was swaddled and squirming in sarks, human flesh, and full of grace and truth. Now, here's, here's something that I think is marvelous. You can take Jesus out of the heavenlies, but you can't take the heavenly out of Jesus. Because even in human flesh, people could look at him, walk with him, listen to him and say, this is what God looks like. This is how God thinks. This is what God says. This is how God treats other people. That's Jesus. You can put flesh on Jesus, but his nature remains unchanged. I'm going to try and unpack what that means after the first of the year. Tonight, let me keep it super simple, and we're going to finish up here. See, that's what I say when I want to keep you on the hook just a minute longer, but I go another 45. No, I won't. I won't. Back in Matthew's gospel, the next prophecy that Matthew recalls in the list of prophecies as he's laying all these things out at Jesus' birth, the very next one was from Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 16, he says, The people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light. And those who were sitting in the land and shadow of death, upon them a light dawned. When Jesus came into the world, the world was dark. This was a dark planet. And from his first Christmas forward Christmas, when the wise men did come to visit, even as they're handing him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh, murder was in the air as Herod is calling for the, the annihilation of all the little boys two years old and under and the women of the area weeping and, and in horror at what is happening. And at that time, of course, then Joseph and Mary, they fled out of there protecting Jesus. Herod wanted to snuff out the Christ light. That's what the world did when Jesus came into this world. And by the way, the dark world is still at it. How many of you have felt things were a little dark recently? How many of you have felt like this is getting, this is not what I remember five years ago <laughs> or 10 or 20. This is not the kind of Christmas season that I knew. I, I just, I really, I'm asking the question, I still don't understand why. Now, I can read in verses 4 and 5 of John chapter 1, in him Jesus was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. I say hallelujah, but then it says, and the darkness did not comprehend it. And I start to understand. Darkness didn't comprehend it. Meaning what? Meaning the darkness doesn't get Jesus. Why do people push back against Jesus? Why do people say no to Jesus? Because they don't get him. Maybe because he's so bright that there's no hiding. So it's like, oh, he sees me in all my glorious flesh. Maybe it's because he's, he's so pure, nothing goes unseen when he shows up. He's so full of grace, though. 
which means to you and to me tonight, all can be forgiven. Some of you just need to hear that right now. You're not sure you're forgivable. Well, guess what? You, are, you can't sin that bad to not be forgiven by Jesus. And who do we think we are when we say, oh, he'd never forgive me. Oh, what? Okay, so you're the first person in all history to be so bad that he just can't save you. Wrong-o, Mary Lou. Or Harry, too. I don't know. He loves you so much. His grace is so incredibly rich and deep and true and eternal that he can forgive you right here and right now tonight. He's full of grace. Problem is, however, the dark pushes back also because he's full of truth and there's no lie and there's no deceit in him and he sees it all and he knows it all and he's aware of it all. And so the darkness doesn't comprehend him. It doesn't get Jesus. But that word comprehend also means to take or to receive from Here's something else I begin to realize. The darkness won't take from him. The darkness won't take from him. I, I, I still, I don't understand such refusal. I don't understand why, after looking closely at Jesus, why anybody doesn't want Jesus. And, and if that's you here tonight, I, I'm, not, I'm not trying to throw a guilt trip or anything else. I'm just saying, you know what? Your eternity is on the line, so please take a look at who he is. Just take the time to read a gospel and ask, is this true? Because if you know Jesus like I know Jesus, your world will lighten up. You'll see what you have never seen before. But there's one more possible meaning to this, that the whole idea of the darkness doesn't comprehend him. It doesn't receive him or take hold of him. Christians, listen to me, good news. It also means the darkness cannot overpower him. The light has come into the world. And if you know Jesus, that's where you are. That's the hope we have, the joy we have. He says, I am the light of the world, John 8, 12. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. That's such good news. And we need to remember that when it's dark, when governments are doing dark things, he's the light of the world. When people are treating you in dark ways, he is the light of the world. Darkness cannot overpower light. So Mark is off like a shot. Luke recalls the birth. Matthew remembers all the ancient prophecies, but John goes all the way back to the oldest, most ancient memory of all. He was in the beginning with God. John chapter 1, verse 2. Verse 3, all things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being, which means you would not be here tonight if Jesus didn't want you to be. And in him was life, and the life was the light of men. What is the first thing, talking about memories, what is the first thing that creation itself can remember hearing God say? Let there be light. Let there be light. And the Bible says, and there was light. It's true. These are dark times. Let there be light. It's true. Deception abounds. Let there be light. And yes, it's true. Jesus even told us, because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. Church family, let there be light. Let us be 
those who reflect the light of the world, Jesus, loving like Jesus, living like Jesus, truthful like Jesus, gracious like Jesus, let there be light. And this Christmas, whether your memories are good or bad or a convoluted mix of both, which is probably more realistic, God offers you, offers me the light of Jesus this very night. And as for painful, sorrowful memories, Isaiah 65, 17 says, Behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things will not be remembered or come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem for rejoicing and her people for gladness. And Jake and I were talking about this earlier this week, and I just have one of these mind-blowing thoughts. Jake asked the question, are we going to watch God create the new heaven and the new earth? And so I went to Isaiah 65. Remember, he said, I'm going to create new heaven and earth. You know what he said? He didn't just say, I'm going to create the new heavens and the new earth. He said, behold, which is a fancy way of saying, look, I'm going to create new heaven and new earth. Look at what I'm going to do. I think we're going to watch it all happen. There's so much ahead of us to be joyful and excited about. There's so much light on the path out ahead of us. And God says, behold, and I believe to you and to me tonight, he would say, behold, the light of the world, Jesus Christ. 